Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest is uh, Dr. Valerie Massa. Valerie is the project lead for the new producer group, a South-to-South knowledge sharing network of 30 emerging oil and gas producer countries. She's an established expert on national oil companies, petroleum sector governance, and emerging strategic issues shaping the energy sector. Valerie is an author of the book, Oil Titans, National Oil Companies in the Middle East. Other publications include Fostering Resilience in Emerging Oil Producers and the Cost of an Emerging National Oil Company. The latter was one of the most well-read books with downloads of up to 41,000. Valerie, the real pleasure having you on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. It's really my pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So based on your um, research and the work that you've done, can you just tell us how do we separate the governance of state-owned entities like oil companies from other private or publicly listed companies in which the state has no interest? Well, I think one of the most important differences is through the board, um, because in state-owned enterprises, the commonly accepted definition is that uh, the state owns at least 50% interest. And so the state dominates the board. Um, and by dominating the board, it, it determines, it makes key decisions like uh, selecting the CEO, uh, approving the strategy, budgets, um, it guides the company. Uh, and so I think through the board, is it, it's really the critical differentiator in terms of governance between a private company and, and, a, and a national one. Hmm. So, so in your view, uh, the, the presence, if you wish, of the voice of the state uh, on the board and decisions affecting the company is, is, is fundamental. And, and if so, if I'm right, you know, in what way does the voice of uh, the state on the board potentially change the culture or the way state-owned companies are run versus publicly listed companies? Yes, I, I think it really has a, a big impact because if on the board you have the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Energy, um, and other, you know, other representatives of the state, um, what you have is, is a board that is guiding the company to have a broader concern for, well, I'd say a wider mandate, a broader mandate than a private company. A private company would be focused on shareholder returns and shareholder share value, um, whereas a, a government-led board will be reminding the company of its obligations for the towards the labor force, uh, towards uh, national energy provision, uh, towards fiscal returns. So it, it 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 definitely imparts a different kind of focus on the company. Hmm. So apart from the governance structure, as as, as uh, exemplified by the presence of uh, state representative on the board. What are the other things outside of the governance sphere that separates state-owned oil companies from 
are those that are either privately owned or publicly listed? Well, I, I think it's really their, uh, their mission is completely different because I think if you, if you establish a, a national oil company, um, it's really to achieve value to the state, value to the country. Um, and so that's what I call uh, the national oil company's national mission. Um, so they may have a commercial mission, which is you know much like any other private company, but the national mission is where it becomes more interesting, um, and it's what you know it's what prompts a country to nationalize uh, or or to create a national oil company, um, and it can be you know. Uh, a, a broader range of, of targets like uh, ensuring national security um, or energy security. Or initially in the 70s, uh, national oil companies were created to sort of take back the industry from the private sector. And there's, there's a lot of uh, sort of national pride in that. Um, nowadays, I think the national mission might include have much more of a focus on local content and creating opportunities for domestic supply chains or domestic skills. Um, and so that's where the potentially interesting conversations should take place in a board or in, in, in the guidance of what a national oil company does. Though I'm afraid in many cases, those, those discussions aren't very explicit or, you know, um, I, I think there's, they're undervalued in, in terms of how the NOC and the state should be focusing on what does the NOC do. Hmm. So it, it, it's interesting. You talked about two things. One, uh, the, the mission uh, as being an overarching uh, differentiator. But it, it is one thing, uh, Valerie, isn't it, to have a mission? but it is another to uh, successfully uh, achieve that mission. So in your experience, what are some of the characteristics that distinguish successful state-owned oil companies from those that are not successful? Well, overall, so I, I do think a clear mission is something that sets a company up for success. Um, because when governments are not clear about what they expect the NOC to do, uh, or when they, the, the national oil company receives multiple directives from multiple actors, uh, it leads to confusion in, in what the company does. So if you think of a, um, NOCs that receive some pressures from uh, parliament, some pressures from the executive, uh, some, some direct calls from ministers or state governors asking them to do things. It, it leads to a very um, sort of fragmented kind of uh, state direction. And the NOC in that circumstance may, may have a more clientelistic kind of you know, uh, relationship with the state. Um, it, it can also just serve its own mandate uh, without, if it doesn't have clarity on what the state wants. Uh, so I think those are, those are important um, sort of governance features of, 
that 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 determine a state uh, an NOC's performance. Um, but I think I think also you know a, an NOC that is successful is one that can um, have a a balanced approach to to both that national mission that's kind of a wide ranging um, set of goals and a hard nose commercial focus as well. It's all about finding that balance. Hmm. That's interesting because uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, quite apart from a clear mission, that there are a, a hierarchy of other issues, like for instance, national pride. Uh, and, and, and now you're saying there's a need to balance this overarching mission with uh, hard-nosed commercial imperatives. In your experience, how well uh, do national oil companies, especially in Africa, uh, strike this, this balance of being a national icon with a, a, a long-term uh, vision and mission, but also being just a well-run uh, corporate entity? Yes, I think that's a really important question because I actually um, did a benchmarking study of African national oil companies for the Africa Development Bank. And in it, we developed a methodology to, to be able to measure the performance of national oil companies, understanding that they aren't like ExxonMobil and Chevron and, and others. So how, how do you measure their performance. Um, and we decided to use um, one measure, which was how well they were generating fiscal revenues, how capable they were technically, uh, you know, are they, are there, are, do they run a tight ship in terms of operations? Are they, do they have good track record on a health, safety and environment? But then also, are they contributing socioeconomically? Um, and so I, I think that you know, a, a lot of the companies actually uh, should be, well, first of all, in order to, to assess that performance, they need to be monitoring how well they're doing. They need KPIs from the government actually telling them, this is exactly what we expect from you. Um, and so if you don't have that direction from government that says, this is what we want, and you don't have the monitoring by the company of saying, this is how well we've done it. You don't have a very successful, well-run company. Um, and in, 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 the, in the benchmarking that we did, we found that very few companies were uh, receiving those clear directives or uh, monitoring their performance well. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, and I like the idea of KPIs because, you know, the, as the saying go, if it's not measured, it's not done. Uh, yes. I, I think this speaks directly to that. And, and, and so in, in a way, what you've, you've done, Valerie, is really clearly set um, the groundwork for, for measuring performance of state-owned enterprises versus corp other corporates because other corporates you know, there's the law, they are licensed, and the deliverables are embedded in that development agreement. So there you have KPS, you could argue. Uh, 
and, and then how you administer them successfully or not is another issue. But the, the absence of KPIs for national oil companies would be very worrying because if you're not measuring them, how in God's name do you justify their existence? But even worse, listening to you, you hold national oil companies to a higher standard because you're saying quite apart from the commercial, you also have this national duty. With that, am I summarizing your sentiments correctly? Yes, exactly. I, I fully agree with you. And, and I think, you know, just because we're asking NOCs to do to have that broader mandate, which is, for example, to, you know, supply reliable, affordable energy to isolated communities, for example, or to, um, to provide training and, um, you know, training opportunities to young nationals. Are we evaluating, or is the NOC evaluating the performance of those programs? Is it monitoring the cost benefit of those programs to report back to the government and say, this was an effective program. This was a good use of state revenues. Um, they're not. And, and there's really no, there's no excuse for that. Um, similarly, you know, the, that, that oversight should be just as strong, um, of course, for the, the hard operational, core operational um, targets that they have. But we find that across the board, there's a lack of monitoring of performance. So it's the, the lack of, the lack of um, focus on monitoring and accountability is, is something that permeates the companies from local content all the way to the uh, upstream uh, performance. So uh, I want to follow up if I can on this uh, root cause of failure. So of course, in recent times, you know, we have watched some spectacular failures of uh, very large oil companies owned by the state, first in Libya and then uh, later uh, Venezuela. In, in, the, in your work with the ADB and Benchmark, you, you, in, you suggested operational competency as one uh, contribution to uh, the national fiscus, and then of course, health and safety. When you think about some of the spectacular failures we've seen, either on the continent and elsewhere, and, 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 and uh, if you wish, hold them against these benchmarks, which one of these do you think is one of the, the factors, the root causes of those failures looked at in, in a more, shall we say, granular uh, basis? Well, I think one of, the, um, one of the major causes of governance failure or performance failure by NOCs, it boils down to how they are overseen and guided by uh, the state. So in, in cases of failure like PDVSA in Venezuela, um, what you see is a government that starts to sort of strangle the NOC uh, with, with demands um, that are multiple calls on its time and resources uh, that end up distracting the NOC completely from its operational focus. 
Um, and so those countries have lost, the government has lost the balance between the national mission and the corporate or commercial mission. Um, and they've also had a situation where you, you have too much political interference in the decision-making. Um, and so the NOC becomes too, um, too politicized and not focused enough on what it's meant to be doing. Um, and so that was certainly the case with PDVSA. Um, I think in, in Libya though, what's interesting is that NOC of Libya did actually maintain a, a sort of focus on its, on its core mission, even though it was operating in a completely chaotic <laughs> uh, and dangerous political uh, context. And so it sort of tried to insulate itself in a bubble from, from that political interference. And it fought very hard to preserve it. Hmm. So this is interesting because uh, what you're saying is that uh, a, a key cause of failure is basically continuous derailment of the original mission from its direction. And incrementally, as that happens, the efficiency in operations itself begins to suffer. And, and before you know it, essentially, you, the structure that was conceived and created just becomes so dysfunctional. The, the end state is that the NOC uh, collapses mm, under the weight, uh, if you wish, of political in interference, which is a tragedy given uh, the reasons for establishing, because if you wish, it's, it's literally killing the goose that lays the egg, isn't it, uh, Valerie? Yes, absolutely. Because I, I, I think the those 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 problems tend to happen gradually over time, and then you end up finding yourself with a an NOC that is completely captured by political interest um, and not not making decisions anymore in the interest of the country or the state. So I think what what often what will characterize a, 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 a unperforming or, or failed NOC is one where the mission is unclear. It's, it's not clear who's guiding it, um, who's in charge. It gets, say, a sort of fragmented uh, authority. Um, one where the state, and this might not be the same NOC, but where where NOCs don't have clear, um, strong accountability processes. So perhaps the state becomes lazy uh, in the accountability. So for example, the political masters may be more interested in the rent that they've collected, perhaps even on the side, um, than in holding the NOC to account. And you know, that requires a very active oversight to hold an NOC to account because the state never knows exactly what the NOC's business is because it's a, it's a high-tech industry and it can be very difficult to interpret the numbers that it sees in any annual report. Uh, and so it has to take a very active 
role in that oversight function. And when it, when states don't, the NOCs uh, operate to some extent opaquely. And then the third kind of failure is one where you have capture um, and you just, you have um, an NOC that creates opportunities for various political elites to, uh, to benefit from, from the business through the procurement and, and other opportunities for corruption. So I'm intrigued by your reference to the Libyan uh, state-owned oil company because you describe it as functioning despite an otherwise a chaotic environment, presumably because somehow it was ring-fenced and allowed, if you wish, to carry on, uh, insulated from uh, the otherwise dysfunctional environment. And, and I'm reminded of a similar uh, situation, not in oil, but in mining. And this is the state-owned entity in Guinea-Conakry, Sebeje, which mines uh, bauxite. This company has survived uh, one chaotic government after another for more than 40 years and more. And it continues to be the flagship and continues to, to profit and bring revenue into the state somehow. And I wanted to ask you, to achieve this kind of ring-fencing of state-owned entities, what does it take? Is it a strong man, strong woman uh, situation in which the people running the entity are strong enough to exclude interference? How is it that it's possible to have order in the presence of all this madness? Yes, I find that such a, a, a fascinating, uh, those fascinating examples where you have what, what you can call a pocket of effectiveness, um, where in a politically chaotic environment, uh, an entity or an organization is able to thrive and perform to a very high standard uh, despite the, that environment. Um, I think, you know, another example uh, of a pocket of effectiveness is uh, Statsoli, the national oil company of Suriname, uh, which has, it's a small national oil company. Uh, it only produces about, I think, 10,000 or uh, 15,000 barrels per day. But those barrels are quite important to the just 500,000 people who live in, in Suriname. Um, and that, that company is, uh, has, operates almost like a, a, uh, a private company in its sort of real relentless focus on performance and, and, and um, uh, running a tight ship. And I think it's a, a lot down to the culture, the corporate culture of the company, the sense of the identity that they derive and the pride they derive from, from being effective for the country uh, to be that tightly run ship. I think in another case is uh, Saudi Aramco, um, which might have very easily become a national oil company that was um, you know, too close to the political elites and giving favors or pulled in different directions uh, by members of the royal family, for example. But there, the king, uh, many years ago, uh, 
made a sent sent a, a letter to the whole royal family that no one was to contact Saudi Aramco directly, that they weren't there for providing favors, um, and that the only way to talk to them was through the board. Uh, and so by doing so, uh, the king and his successors after all sort of maintained that, um, that sort of rule that, that Saudi Aramco wasn't, um, wasn't sort of open for, for direct contact and that protected the company. Um, so I think those are different, different, but in similar, similar kind of cases of pockets of effectiveness. Yeah. So, so I, I, I'm intrigued by your reference to culture because I, I remember uh, probably 20 years ago, uh, serving on a board of a mining company and um, the chairperson of the board at an event made a statement, which has always stayed with me, which is that you know, companies are like people, they form habits, and that good habits are just as hard to break as bad ones. And in a way, uh, the example you are giving uh, is a case in point, like Suriname, which you are right about. Uh, it it's really has been an island on its own for a very long time, functioning in a corporate environment that is, uh, by and large, uh, above reproach. Uh, but you're also making the point that somebody has to take responsibility to draw the line in the sand and say to those who may be inclined to abuse, you will not cross this line. And, and when that happens, you force people to either stick their head out and, and break the law and then account, or you are forcing them to step back. And, and I think that then speaks to not just culture, but a clarity of purpose and good leadership. Wouldn't you say that? Oh, yes, I, I quite agree. I think, I think the, the culture is a, a really underestimated but critical factor in, in company success. Um, and, and you could even extend that to uh, civil service as well. I mean, I, I think the, the, the culture of an organization is extremely important. Uh, and that's nurtured over time. It's, 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 it should be talked about in the organization and it should be an aspirational uh, culture, one that, that makes employees want to be better, you know, sort of uh, be part of something. And that, those kinds of cultures can really carry national oil companies uh, towards a, a really better outcome. But then, as you say, a signal from leadership is also an important ingredient there because you need to, you, you have to have a good example set from above um, to, to have a, a culture that, um, uh, that can be built from the bottom as well. So we've talked quite a bit about um, uh, the difference between success and failure. But I, I want to uh, address a different issue. So for people like myself, it seems logical that if you are Nigerian or Angola or Sudan for that matter, and you produce a lot of oil, uh, uh, that you ought to be able to generate uh, energy and electricity and, and supply it to your people in an efficient, affordable way. 
And yet, this doesn't seem to be a straight line. And, and I wondered whether you could just explain uh, to the listeners the difference between being a producer of petroleum, oil or gas for that matter, and being a generator and a supplier of affordable electricity to citizens. Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a common um, misplaced expectation, I would say, uh, from the publics that when they produce oil um, and even gas, that they should, have, um, they should have cheap gasoline, cheap gas, and that they should have uh, cheap electricity as well. So in terms of the electricity expectation, it's not the same player. So of course, the there are very few national oil companies, or I can't even think of any really, who, um, who also operate um, in terms of a sort of a state utility for providing electricity. So usually they would have to sell their, their gas to that utility or their oil to the utility. Um, but the expectation of cheap energy um, is, is one that's been very dangerous really for, uh, for many producing countries because it's led them to undervalue what they uh, provide to their, to their publics. Um, and often the NOC carries the subsidy costs uh, of of providing that cheap factor input for economic growth, and it leads to um, really just ever growing consumption patterns domestically. But I, I think it's quite different in the Middle East and Africa uh, because I think in the Middle East that's really been the case. Um, but by and large, in Africa, you in sub-Saharan Africa anyway you don't see so much the NOC providing cheap oil and gas uh, to, to, the, to the economy. So I want us to stay uh, with this subject because it's one that is uh, very important and topical, but to your point, uh, grossly misunderstood because what people aren't appreciating is the value chain and how the value chain is separated from upstream, midstream to downstream and how the investors in these various uh, stages are different. That would be one way of seeing it, isn't it? And, and that is important if you want to unlock value to disaggregate that. Would that be about right? Yes, I think there's, there's so many different NOCs as well. Uh, some are um, only focused on upstream. So they're only exploring for and producing oil and gas. Um, whereas others were created really as downstream companies uh, to either run a refinery or sometimes just to import gasoline uh, and other fuel needs uh, for the country. And there are many cases of those downstream NOCs in, in Africa, in fact. Um, and then you have companies that become integrated uh, uh, national oil companies that produce the oil and gas and process it uh, so that it becomes an, an end product. Um, and so 
I, I think often that may not be understood by the public, the, the different sort of focus that their, that their state-owned enterprises might have. In Ghana, I think it's quite a, a, a one where the, the national oil company, the state-owned enterprises are quite differentiated because there's one doing upstream oil, there's one doing upstream gas, there's um, a midstream gas, there's state utilities. And so there's a whole chain of actors um, that, um, that, are, that basically connect the, the oil and gas field in the sea to the end user in Ghana. Valerie, I'm glad that uh, you referenced Ghana because I've always been intrigued by the structure of uh, state investments in uh, the petroleum sector. And for that matter, the regulatory, but let, let's stick to the investment. So uh, the state has uh, GMPC, the state has uh, uh, the gas component, the oil component and the refinery. I've always wondered about the wisdom and the economics of having so many players in a space in which the country is really not a major producer. You know, is it not better in those uh, circumstances to have one single entity or can we really justify in your mind having so many uh, entities in a country in which petroleum is not produced in significant quantities? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, I think that's right. You know, Ghana, um, I, as you say, it's not a it's not a major player, and um, perhaps this creates or contributes to the impression among Ghanaians that their petroleum sector is a really big contributor to the economy, uh, which would be a misperception. Um, but I, I think also another problem with having multiple companies um, is that there's been it, there, there, there are some elements of that chain that are unprofitable. And so how does the, that part of the chain that is unprofitable pay uh, or get paid? And it creates um, sort of a holdup in, in that chain. So the, the whole problem of gas to power in Ghana um, is, could be, could be alleviated by having one integrated company that can offset the losses from one part of that chain with the gains and profits that it makes in another part of the chain, which is commonly what NOCs do with their refining business, um, where they'll, it's usually not a profitable industry, or at least very cyclical, and those losses are offset by the upstream. Um, you could also say that it's it, it's good to sh to shed a lot of light on the the segments that aren't profitable, so that the state can reflect on how how to mm, change the regulatory environment and maybe tariffs, so that um, so that it isn't so unprofitable. Mm. So really, what you're saying is there are different ways of looking at it, and and either approach has uh, its own. Uh, pros and cons. You can't just say this is the way to do it. And, and I think that makes sense. I do want to go back to our original conversation of the relationship between a, a national uh, petroleum producer and affordable uh, fuel, electricity, and other uh, consumer products. You, you mentioned the notion that 
are leaning too heavily on a national oil company uh, for delivery of utilities might be what you describe as uh, undervaluing it. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, if I think of a, of a company like um, Sonatrac from Algeria, um, it, it supplies uh, gas uh, under or just at cost or under cost um, to, the, to the utilities. Um, it supplies gasoline uh, at or under cost. And so this has led Algerians to uh, and Algerian businesses to count on um, very cheap energy, basically, um, and leads them to consume it without, well, they're not factoring in higher prices into their decision-making. And so it's not forcing them to adjust their, their, their behavior. So now that we're going, you know, clearly towards a climate crisis, uh, I think it's, it's high time for, a, you know, changes in, in, in our approach to this, um, and especially to take into account not only the, the financial cost of this product, but also the carbon cost of it. So the adjustment is going to be much more difficult in a country like Algeria that's had unsustainable patterns of consumption of energy over time um, to, to make that shift. Um, and I think it's, it's critical that it does so, otherwise it will be increasingly in, uh, uncompetitive in relation to the world, uh, world economy. Yeah, it's interesting you should uh, cite uh, Algeria, of course, because also you see in that same country that, uh, you know, to, to, because of this undervaluation, uh, very often the state has to borrow from uh, development finance institutions to really foot the bill that if the assets uh, and the product was properly priced, to reflect its value, the state wouldn't have to carry the burden of uh, feeding the, the very hand that it should feed the state. So it, it is, uh, I think, not only undervaluing, but it's also counterintuitive to the whole object of uh, trying to capitalize on, on national wealth. Let me ask you another question. Um, hmm. In some countries, uh, what governments do to try and bridge the gap between the true price of extracting oil and then selling it and then turning it uh, into uh, fuel and other consumables. Governments introduce uh, subsidies. And I wanted to ask you, do the economics of petroleum justify this kind of intervention? And if not, you know, what is the alternative way of meeting this public expectation, which you rightly call misplaced? But uh, as you yourself know, expectations are what they are, misplaced or not. Yes, I, I think the, the, the big challenge that producer countries have found with subsidies is that once you introduce them, 
it's extremely difficult to remove them because you become really politically exposed um, uh, because people are expecting it. They've made decisions, they've made business decisions based on it. They're, they become, it, it's just, it requires such behavior change that it becomes very problematic. Um, I think the, the one difference is between, you know, what a lot of countries are saying, we're not providing subsidies, we're just not, we're not invoicing the full, uh, the international market price. And so basically, the NOC sells uh, at the price, at the cost at which, uh, it, um, at the price at which it cost it to produce the oil or gas. Um, and that's still a, a form of subsidy because it is still um, um, undervaluing the product. You might say, though, that in some circumstances, it makes sense today, even in, with an energy transition, uh, to do that in some circumstances, uh, like, for example, where you might have um, populations that are dependent on biomass and um, heavy fuel oil for generators or diesel for generators, uh, that there's a lot of health impacts and environmental impacts of that kind of um, uh, energy use. There it can make sense for the state to provide LPG at cost or to even subsidize that to remote, you know, geographically remote communities uh, because the, 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 the end result is an improvement in emissions and quality of life, um, even though it comes at a financial cost. You have to reflect carefully on, on, on the, full, the full cost in terms of not just financial, but social and environmental costs. Um, of, of those kinds of policies. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Valerie, it was wonderful speaking with you. I, I, I'm sure that uh, the listeners of the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast will find our conversation interesting. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sheila. <laughs>